Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. To be completely rugged is basically to be rigid. That's like back to homeostasis, to not change. To be completely flexible is just to go with the flow always. And while that sounds nice in theory, oftentimes it's not so nice in practice because we're humans. We have agency. We want to use that agency. People often think about ruggedness and flexibility as being these diametrically opposed opposites. But what I argue is that they're actually complements. Like the best way to navigate big changes is to be both rugged and flexible. So to be strong, to know your strengths, to know what those things are, and then to be very flexible in how you apply those and how you adapt. So it's not rugged or flexible, but it's rugged and flexible. And I think that is ultimately the best mindset to bring to the bigger changes in our lives. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Brad, welcome back to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much for having me. It's always great to be talking with you. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you back here. You have a new book out called Master of Change, all of which we will get into. But as you know, from our previous conversations, I want to start with something that has nothing to do with the book. And that is, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up influencing what you've ended up doing with your life? So my father was a financial advisor and my mom was a journalist. And now I'm a writer. Now, what's interesting is that neither of my parents really pressured me to pursue the work that they did. Um, but I did grow up in a house where there was a lot of books mm-hmm. and just writing was something that was really important. Um, however, I went to school. I didn't think I was going to be a writer. I thought I was going to go into business or something like that. I ended up taking my first job at a consulting firm. And um, my path to becoming a full-time writer was quite circuitous. Yeah, uh, but here I am. Well, I mean, I think that's the case for so many people. What did your parents like explicitly or implicitly teach you about making your way in the world? Particularly, you when you have your dad who's a financial advisor, mother is a journalist, and as we both know from having built careers in the arts, I mean, being a journalist is probably not the most lucrative thing in the world. Yeah, that's right. 
And we're fortunate. So I grew up middle class. Um, my father's income definitely was the the income that subsidized my mom's writing. Um, and when my mom had myself and my brother, she scaled back quite a bit. She really wanted to be all in as a mom. And it's basically impossible to be all in as a journalist and all in as a mom. Um, so how, how, how did it help me to navigate the world? Yeah. I think just, you know, it, I, I'm so fortunate. Like I did have kind of this cookie cutter middle class upbringing. Of course, my family was messed up in the ways that all families are messed up, but it was nothing out of the ordinary. I didn't have any adverse childhood trauma or anything like that. So more than anything, I think I just like, I'm very fortunate to have had a childhood that was fairly stable mm-hmm. um, because so many people don't have that good fortune. And um, it's a lot harder, I think, to do well in school or to compete in sport if you're not sure where your next meal is going to come from or if there's violence in the home. And I didn't have to deal with any of that. Yeah. What did your dad teach you about money, particularly as a financial advisor? I mean, I would imagine that somebody who's a financial advisor might pass on some pretty useful lessons to their children. Yeah, basically boring is the way to go. So anyone that tells you that they've got this plan for how to make money or they're going to meet the stock or excuse me, they're going to beat the stock market or uh, anything kind of sexy and bright and shiny, you just run the other direction. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, the best way to generate wealth and to build well is the most boring way, yeah. which is to have a consistent, steady income, save as much as you can, and then invest that saving in really safe, boring index funds, municipal bonds, mutual funds. Um, stay away from trying to beat the market and pick a stock and just slow and steady compounding gains is the way to go. Well, you know, it's funny because when you say that, I can't help but think about how true that is, not just for finances, but in damn near every area of life. Like you talk to somebody about, you know, how do you become a writer? I'm like, you sit down and you write every day and that's it. It's like, wait, this is it. This is what, you know, we paid a thousand dollars to take this course and you're going to tell me to do the thing that I know I should do, but I won't get myself to do. I'm like, yes. Uh, but I feel like there's so much of this sort of shiny object syndrome on the internet where you see people who basically are, you know, selling people false hopes. It's like, oh, you can do this, you can be anything. And I, I just feel like the people just are so susceptible to that. Why, why do you think that is? Like, why do people want the easy way out or the shiny object? Well, I don't actually think it's necessarily even the easy way out. I think that what it is, is that people like to chase complexity. Mm-hmm. Because complexity gives you excuses that you can hide behind. Mm. Whereas simplicity is right in your face. Yeah. So did you save money and did you put it in a boring index fund or did you not? Did you sit down to write or did you not? Did you go to the gym and train hard for an hour or did you not? Yeah. Like there's no hiding behind that. You either do it or you don't. Mm -hmm. And I think what happens with all of these bright and shiny objects and fads are that they get so complex and there are grifters and charlatans out there selling like you have to eat this exact food at this exact time and work out in this exact way. And it's the same thing for writing and productivity as it is for finance. This is across the board. And I think part of why there's such a demand for that stuff is because it makes it easier to procrastinate on doing the thing that you actually need to do, which is usually the simple thing. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot easier to like think about all the things you need to do to write and have this big master plan to write and set a Pomodoro timer and make sure that you've got the perfect supplement schedule with mushroom tea and all of these other things. Well, guess what? Like you're hiding behind the thing. The thing is right. I don't care if you're tired. I don't care if you're a little bit dehydrated. I don't care if you've got 30 minutes or 30 hours. If you want to write, you got to write. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, 
so talk to me about the the path that led you to becoming a writer. You alluded to it briefly and you said it was somewhat circuitous, which I think is pretty standard for almost anybody I talk to. I don't think that anybody I have ever talked to has been on a, a linear path. And I think that that will make a perfect segue into the book. So, yeah, as I said, um, as a kid, I was always into writing, um, but never thought of it as a potential profession. And this started all the way back in high school. I wrote for the school newspaper. I was also an athlete. Um, and I really wanted to do one of two things in college. I wanted to either play college football or go to journalism school. And the funny thing is, I wasn't good enough to play D1 football. So I decided not to play at a small school. And I got rejected from the journalism school that I applied to. Mm-hmm. So like most 17-year-olds finishing up their junior year of high school, I said, all right, like, guess I'm not going to be a writer. I'll go to, you know, what was a great school, still is, University of Michigan, and I'll study economics. And maybe I'll get a degree in business. So I did that. And throughout school, it was very clear that my skill set lied in English and communications, not in math and science. So I really struggled in the math and science and I was really strong in communications. Mm -hmm. And I was able to hide that enough to get a degree in organizational behavior. So like I fudged my way through the econ classes. But the reason I didn't get a business degree is because I would have flunked out of school had I had to take like econometrics and and the really math-based econ. So I parlayed that into a job at a big consulting firm. And at the consulting firm, I was never the person that was building the financial model. I was always the person making the slides or writing the white paper. So I didn't really know it at the time, but I was doing a lot of nonfiction writing in that job. Mm-hmm. And then I went back to grad school and my graduate degree was not math based at all. Um, I shouldn't say at all, but it was, it was predominantly more like analytical and language arts based. And I did a lot of writing there and um, I started a blog, right? This is at WordPress 101 or Blogsphere, right? This is like the original blogging days of the internet. I know you're my age, so you probably remember this yep. is like the golden era of the internet. We all had blogs. <laughs> Well, I think that basically everybody thinks that the era at which none of the things that they have were now was the golden era. It's like the golden era of television, the golden era of the internet. But yeah, I get it. But I do think it was blogs. Like there was no social media. There were no trolls in the comments. Like you had a blog and people had to like comment on your blog. Mm -hmm. Um, And everything was really slow, which it's easy to romanticize, but it wasn't terrible. So I had a blog and what that blog did is it made me write regularly. And um, I just kept at it. It was a side hustle during grad school. It was a side hustle after grad school. When I got out of grad school, I took a job at a big healthcare system doing internal consulting. But I kept writing. And eventually, some of these things that I wrote got read. They got passed around. They got shared. I got invitations to write more. I said yes to everything. At the time, it was mostly unpaid. Mm-hmm. And over about a five-year time period, I slowly realized that, hey, I actually think like I can start making some money doing this writing thing. Um and then I transitioned into being a full-time writer, you know, really just six years ago, not even four yeah. years ago, mm-hmm. which is kind of funny because I'd published two books before mm-hmm. I let go of everything else and said, all right, I'm going to be a writer. Yeah. Um, and here I am. Yeah. I want to come back to publishing two books before you actually let go and said that you're going to be a writer. Uh, but I want to go back to college because I think you and I have such parallel paths that it's, it's almost freakish to, to see how they are because I was a, an econ major at Berkeley because uh, for the very reasons, in fact, I wasn't even an econ major. I was an environmental economics major because my grades were so bad that I knew I couldn't get into the business school. Um, and if I were going to be an econ major, that would have meant econometrics, as you mentioned. But more importantly, like I think the, the bigger thing that struck me was that you kind of saw this pattern. And I, I wonder like, if you could go back and do it differently and you were guiding somebody else who was in that same position where they kind of you know fell into a, a path or major by default, 
what would you change? And, how, and you know, what advice would you give them? It's hard to change anything for myself because it worked out so well. Yeah. So I don't necessarily think the advice is to change your major. I think the advice is to do something that you'll excel at in school where you'll do pretty well and define that really broadly. So yeah, like you can be an econ major, but econ can be a whole lot of math or it can be a whole lot of analytical analysis that is in words, not numbers. Mm-hmm. And really like lean on the latter. Yeah. So I think that, you know, majors are important, right? And they do, they come with core curriculums and credits that you have to get when you're a, a college student. But I also think that more and more, like just the benefit of a liberal arts education itself is really strong. Mm-hmm. And don't be pigeonholed by your major. So your major is only as pigeonholing as you're going to allow it to be. And I think you see this all the time because now you see there are PhDs in philosophy that are getting jobs in finance. And there are people that went to business school that are full-time newsletter writers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, so it's funny you say that because like, I discounted the value of having a degree in economics. And then I realized like, how different it is when I'm actually working in my own business that subconsciously I'm actually thinking through that lens at moments without even realizing it. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, and anyone is going to... And this gets back to like a broad liberal arts degree. I mean, I think that the point of school isn't what to think, but it's how to think. And whether you're an econ major, a psych major, a sociology major, a literature major, a philosophy, perhaps mostly a philosophy major, an extremist philosophy major, I think the real goal of like applying yourself as 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 a youth or a young adult to intellectual rigor is really learning how to think. Mm-hmm. more than what to think. And then you can carry that with you into anything that you do. Yeah. I mean, I know if I'm hiring for a role, I want someone that has a really good, dynamic, multifaceted toolkit of how to think. Mm. I could care less what their major is, but if their major trained them to think, then that's a person that I'm excited to work with. Well, I feel like we could do an entire hour just on how to think, but let's, let's touch on, let's go a little bit deeper on this idea. You know, because I think that this is one thing I realized that I was totally not given, uh, you know, in the, the mid nineties when I went to school at Berkeley was I didn't learn how to think at least to the best of my, my ability. Like when I compare it to now from having read all these different books, like one of my friends watches me work with the AI tool in mem and, and I told him, he's like, you're like a savant with this thing. And I was like, yeah, but that's because I have a thousand books to draw from that I've read and a thousand people that I've interviewed. So I'm thinking through the lens of all these conversations I've had. And that is not something I knew how to do before. So I, I, you know, that's really interesting. So my experience is similar, but different. I think where I'm similar is yes, like I've picked up a lot of tools since going to school, but I still think like, and it's been a long time and like, you know, I went to University of Michigan, so we have that in common too. It's like big state schools, iconic campuses, um, the whole deal. I do think just like the notion of a five paragraph essay, Mm -hmm. like have a governing thought, Try to prove it, prove it with evidence, be persuasive. And then if you're good, like list all the reasons that you might be wrong and address those too. That is something I feel like I picked up in school. Yeah. Now, how I've applied that over time has, has changed a crap load, but it's almost like the foundation, you know, comes from school, or at least in mm-hmm. my case did. And then you can build on that. Now, are there tons of counterfactuals? Absolutely. There are people that didn't go to school or that dropped out of school that are phenomenally, um, rigorous thinkers. So it's, it's, it's my path and it's my experience, but it's not to say that it's the best one for everyone. And I do think that something that is really wonderful 
about the internet is that for all the crap that's out there, there's also a lot of good stuff. Mm-hmm. And you can build your own little mini education in a topic if you put in the work and you have the discipline and you set constraints um, and go pretty deep on just about anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, speaking of which, I mean, talk to me about what led to this book, 
uh, as the natural follow-up. And also, there's one thing I wanted to touch on. You mentioned that you didn't let go of everything else until after publishing two books, which I think is, is really, it's funny because a lot of people would have thought, oh, you got the book deal. This is the time you get to quit. Yeah, so let me touch on that first, and then we'll dive into the, uh, the, the, the new book. How does that sound? Sounds great. All right, so I think that there's, there's a couple of different ways of approaching this, and at the time I did it, I wasn't knowingly doing any of these things. I was just doing what felt right. So it's only in hindsight that I can look back and say, oh, this is kind of what I was doing. So I'm going to start by quoting Nassim Taleb, writer of Anti-Fragile. And in that book, he talks about the best way to be a rock star is to be an accountant. Because if you're an accountant, you're working this steady nine to five job where you have guaranteed income. And it's not that being an accountant is easy, but like it's not the most intellectually rigorous thing. So you're making good money. You're showing up, you're working. But then what you do in your free time, you can take all kinds of crazy risks. Whereas if you say, I'm going to be a full-time rock star, there is so much pressure on you to perform and to do well right away that most people are going to fail. And I think this is especially true in writing. Because when you say, I'm just going to be a full-time writer, it is so easy to need to make money. And rightfully so, that you fall into the trap of just churning shit out to make money. Listicles, clickbait, you know, maybe you get sucked into unethical behavior to plagiarizing because you've got to make a paycheck. Whereas if you hold on to your day job, You might not write as often and you might not get to like fancy your ego by saying, I'm a full-time writer, but you can take big risks because if you miss them, then it doesn't matter. Like you still have a paycheck. You can still pay rent and put food on the table. So I was really deliberate about having a very slow glide path into having the majority of my income come from writing because I never wanted to get pigeonholed into needing to make money as a writer. Does that make sense? That makes complete sense. Like I, I had a guest here named Karan Bajaj who uh, told me, he said the best thing that he ever did was for, for his writing was not to make his living dependent on it. And he ended up writing two books. A third one even got optioned for a movie and he still didn't quit his job. He basically said, he's like, no, he's like writing is something I do for myself and it's fun. And he said, it, he said, I think it's because of that I've had uh, success because he's, then I don't have to cater to the whims of my audience. I get to write what I want. And he's, I think, the GM at Discovery Channel or something like that. Yeah. You know, there's some research, too, um, that shows that for not just writing, but for any entrepreneurship, individuals that keep their day job while building their new company on the side Mm -hmm. tend to have about a 33% greater chance of success than individuals who quit their day job to build their company. And I think that it really does come down to when you have that stable foundation, Mm -hmm. you don't feel pressured to make short-sighted decisions and you don't fall into the easy thing to make money. You can stay true to your values and take bigger risks. Yeah, I mean, I I think that for the first year that we were building the podcast, I had a day job. And then for the years after, I was probably at my parents' house for four years. So I never had to worry about it until... And so as a result, I was able to, to your point, do things that were aligned with my core values. It was really... I mean, obviously, the moment you become dependent on it for money, it changes everything. Like there are times where we have to say yes or no to advertisers and it's like, okay, do we need the money? Yeah, we need to take the money. Yeah, exactly. And I think that um, there's nothing wrong with that. And like, listen, now, you know, outside of my small coaching practice, like my income is based on my writing and the speaking and everything that comes with it. And now I wouldn't want it any other way because mm-hmm. like going to a corporate job would feel so soul sucking. So I'm not saying like, yeah, you should stay in your soul sucking job, but I am kind of saying that like, 
don't leave your corporate job so fast. Like get your ducks in a row and really build a foundation, especially because it's such a common trap, I think. It's mm-hmm. just like ego tells you. Like Srini, your ego is probably like, I want to be a full-time podcaster. And I want to say like, I'm a podcaster. Um, or I want to like have my online course. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be a writer or whatever it is. Yeah. And that's just your ego. Like, you know, show up and work the day job until you are so confident that you're ready to make the leap mm-hmm. where you're not going to feel trapped to sacrifice on what you actually want to do in a big way. So here's the funny thing about this, right? As I think that there's another trap that, that, that falls somewhere in between. And that is people basically will keep telling themselves, yes, you know, I'll do this thing when I'm ready. Cause that whole ducks in a row thing, I think can also become a, an excuse where people are constantly talking about getting their ducks in a row and never doing a damn thing. Like I, so I'll give you an example. I had two friends who wanted to start businesses, one that I went to business school with and another from high school. Friend I went to business school with had a really high paying job. Um, and he kept meeting me, telling me about this business that he wanted to start it. And he showed up one day, he was like, I got a business card made. I'm like, fantastic. So then I go and meet the other friend who was a friend from high school. You know, he had had a day job, got laid off literally before, uh, I think six months before his wedding, he lost his job. Uh, and he had just bought a house with his soon-to-be wife. And I was like, holy shit. And instead of printing a business card or building a website, this guy put up a landing page and basically said, I'll offer Airtable consulting sessions. And I think he drove $5 a day with YouTube ads. And at the end of the first month, he had made $10,000. And he didn't go yeah, back to his day job. Like there's a, you see where I'm trying to get to with this? I do. I also think like a business card is like, you know, my, my first literary agent ever, when I had a website, I was spending all this time building my website. And he's like, dude, a website's just a brochure. Like, stop worrying about your website and start writing. Mm-hmm. And I think like that's a business card kind of trap too. Yeah. But I do see where you're going with this. Um, and I think that like the tools that work work really well until they get in your way. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, you kind of have to feel your way into this and say, Hey, am I staying in my day job because I want to like have this solid foundation and I'm, letting my ego like or I'm not letting my ego drive me to like say I'm a full-time writer or are you staying in your day job like because you're scared and you're putting the thing off Uh and if it's the latter then yeah maybe like you do need a little bit more pressure and you do need a little bit more of a forcing mechanism um there's this thing that actually I profile in the book master of change called the inescapability trigger which basically says that it's easier to make a change once you determine something is inescapable so if you're in a terrible job and you're like, well, maybe the job will get better. I'm just going to give it till the next performance review. Well, maybe I'll do job crafting. You know, I'll try to change the way that I work. Uh, maybe I'll try to get like a new role within the same company. All these things allow you to work with the situation as it is. Instead of at some point, you just say, this sucks. I need something new. And once you say that, instead of trying to fix what is, you can start focusing on the future and on what might be. And I think that's maybe a little bit of what you're saying too. So it is like it's all truth is paradox, right? You jump your job too soon. You have all these pressures. You bend on your values and ethics. You start writing listicles. It sucks. You use your job as a crutch for too long and you never actually do the thing that you want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that makes a perfect segue into the book itself. So talk to me about you know, why this was sort of the next natural follow-up. Like what was the the impetus for writing this book? So in the, fa- in the, in the, in the past five years, um, Personally, I have undergone just like a lot of big changes in my own life. So I became a dad and then I became a dad again. I had major orthopedic surgery on my leg that forced me out of a sport that had become a huge part of my identity and lifestyle. I quit my job or I guess I 
more more elegantly, I resigned from my my corporate job to go full time as a writer. I moved across the country. I became really painfully estranged from certain family members. Um, the list goes on and on. And these are just in my personal life. Societally, well, guess what's happening? The pandemic, which is something that everyone lived through, is a massive change. Changes in how we work, changes in how we play, changes in how we grieve and relate to family members. Now artificial intelligence is on the horizon. And this is all just within five years. So what I do when I am experiencing something is I just like try to get really curious about it and dive into the research. And I realized that so many of the common ways of thinking about change and navigating change are pretty outdated and, and inaccurate. Mm-hmm. And this really came to a head for me towards the beginning of the pandemic when all of these articles were running in major publications in the spirit of, well, when are things going to get back to normal? <laughs> or, you know, it'll be three months before they get back to normal. And it just struck me that like getting back to normal is probably never going to happen. Yeah. And, like, what if that's not how change works? What if change isn't about getting back to normal, but about ending up in a new normal or stability somewhere new? Uh, and that was the kernel of the idea that that became the book. Yeah. Well, you open the book by saying, here lies the problem. A central narrative in our culture urges us to seek stability, yet this doesn't reflect the reality that change is constant and that with the right skills, change can be a dramatic force for growth. And you know, it's funny you mentioned that, uh, you know, back to normal thing, because Brian Holiday published an article about this on Medium, and he said, stop waiting for things to go back to normal. And he had listed all these historical examples of situations that were, you know, like parallel to the pandemic. But I think the thing that, you know, interests me is, is like, why is this cultural narrative so pervasive, even though it's in conflict with reality? Well, that goes back to the foundational science on change. So in the late 1800s, a physiologist named Walter Cannon came up with this model for change that he called homeostasis. And I'm sure you've heard of it. Many of your listeners probably have too. Homeostasis describes a pattern where you have stability or order, then you have change or disorder, and then the goal is to get back to stability or order as fast as possible. So the example in the human body is your temperature is 98.6. You get sick, there's change, there's disorder, you run a fever, and then the body's goal is to get back to 98.6, right? To self-regulate, to get back to homeostasis. And this has been the prevailing model of change for the last 150 years. More recently, researchers have pointed out that while homeostasis is the right model for very specific things, like that of a fever, for 99.99% of changes, it's actually not the best model to conceive of change. Healthy living systems, they like stability, but that stability is always somewhere new. So homeostasis describes a cycle of order, disorder, back to order. What researchers now call allostasis describes a cycle of order, disorder, reorder. So yes, we crave stability, but that stability is somewhere new. Mm -hmm. The goal of homeostasis is to be stable by not changing, by resisting change. The goal of allostasis is to find stability by adapting to our environments and by changing with grace and grit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's it. I mean, it's this fundamental shift, right? Homeostasis, change is bad, get back to where we're going, order, disorder, back to order. That has been the conventional thinking for so long when in fact, the, the literal root of the word homostasis, homo means same, stasis means stability. So you get stability by staying the same. That is homeostasis. That's what we've been sold 
That's what we've been taught. Just in the past two decades, allostasis. Allo means variable. Stasis, as I just said, means stability. So the way we get stability is by being variable, by changing. Mm -hmm. And it is this mind-blowing shift. Like it's so simple, but then you embrace it as a mindset and you realize how true it is. Like we're always changing. Forget externally, internally, we're always changing. We're aging. We become ill, we recover. Um, Our families grow, our families shrink. We get new jobs, we lose jobs, we retire. Like there's so many moments where we change. And then just throughout the day, you know, like we think we're going to do X and then our dog vomits. And now suddenly we're X minus 20 minutes. So we're never, like we're never stable by staying the same. Yeah. Well, it sounds like the, the way, way to my... be stable is by changing well. Yeah. Well, my morning started, you know, like I said, by telling you that I had planned to come to read for 40 minutes. And then I was like, damn it, that preview didn't save my highlights from your book. So now I got to go through and change all of this. So there goes that X minus 20 minutes. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that that is, um, that's such a great example like of how, yes, this is the big stuff, right? This is marriage, divorce, a terrible health diagnosis, losing your job. It's also the big stuff in a good way. It's, you know, I guess I said marriage. Marriage is generally a good thing, but it's having kids. It's graduating from school, starting a new job. But change also just happens all the time. And it, it often throws us off because we think that in order to be stable, we've got to stick to the plan instead of viewing stability as just an ongoing dance with everything that's changing always. Well, let's talk about how to prevent it from throwing us off because I will tell you like moments like that, you know, I mean, I've gotten better at recovering from them, but there are days when something like that will happen and the whole day just goes to shit. Uh, you know, and it's fine because I recover within a day. So part of that maybe is just my expectations of, okay, maybe it's okay not to be productive for a day. Um, but I get annoyed. And one of the things that you say is the goal is not to be stable and therefore never change, nor is the goal to sacrifice all sense of stability passively surrendering yourself to the whims of life. Rather, the goal is to marry these qualities to cultivate what I call rugged flexibility. So how do we deal with this? Like when, when you know, shit hits the fan in our lives or in our day-to-day? All right, so in the, the day-to-day, let's start with the day-to-day example. Um, I think that there's a really helpful heuristic here and it is um, two Ps versus four Ps. I don't have a better name for it, but if you can come up with one, let me know. So the two Ps are you get thrown off and you panic and then you pummel ahead. And this is just getting really caught up in like hot emotions and then you just react. The four Ps, it's much more deliberate. It's much more thoughtful. Mm-hmm. So something happens, something disrupts your day. First thing you do is you pause and you just give those emotions time to cool down a little bit. Then you process what happened. What does it mean? Then you make a plan. What am I going to do about it? And then you proceed. And that space, getting those extra couple peas in, right? That buys you the ability to respond instead of react. Mm-hmm. And when we go from reacting to responding, we make such more skillful, better decisions and we feel better because we're not in that like frantic, frenetic state. Yeah. So day to day, I really think it comes down to just a lot of practice of when these things happen, just in 30 seconds, just gathering yourself, saying like, all right, like shit, this just happened. Here's what's happening now. Uh, here's what it, here's what it means. Here's what I'm going to do or not do about it. All right. And now I'm just going to get on with my day. Mm -hmm. And my reference point has gone from A to B. And that's fine because that's how life works. Yeah. Um, For bigger, more dramatic changes, I think that, you know, there's, there's so many different, different ways to, to go into this topic here. But I think the first is this notion of rugged flexibility. So to be completely rugged, 
is basically to be rigid. That's like back to homeostasis, to not change. To be completely flexible is just to go with the flow always. And while that sounds nice in theory, oftentimes it's not so nice in practice because we're humans. We have agency. We want to use that agency. People often think about ruggedness and flexibility as being these diametrically opposed opposites. But what I argue is that they're actually complements. Like the best way to navigate big changes is to be both rugged and flexible. So to be strong, to know your strengths, to know what those things are, and then to be very flexible in how you apply those and how you adapt. Mm -hmm. So it's not rugged or flexible, but it's rugged and flexible. And I think that is ultimately the best mindset to bring to the bigger changes in our lives. Yeah. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, I mean, you talk about a, a number of sort of layers on top of this in terms of emotions. So let's talk about a few of those, because one of the things that you say is recent studies demonstrate that expectations don't just influence our perception of current experiences and remembers of past ones. They also affect how we approach the future in a multitude of ways. And I think that, you know, I've read this over and over that, you know, happiness basically is this, you know, idea that your expectations meet reality. The problem is that often our expectation, our reality doesn't meet our expectations. That's right. So it's so important when navigating change to update your expectations for reality. Because like you said, the equation that at least the equation that I've heard and that I use is that your mood at any given time equals your reality minus your expectations. Hmm. So if your expectations are really high and then a change happens and your reality is really low, your mood's going to be very negative. And that's normal. You're a human. But this more swiftly, you can update your expectations and say, all right, like I thought reality was going to be this, but it's actually that. Well, that puts you in a position to deal with it, to take productive action instead of just like wallowing in despair. Uh-huh. So one of the biggest traps that we fall into when things change is we hold on to our old expectations for what things could have been or should have been instead of updating our expectations to meet the situation where it is. Yeah. And expectations are so powerful. Like a prime example of this happened during the pandemic where I don't know if you remember, but the the first summer, so like, excuse me, not the first summer, geez, the second summer of the pandemic, I think it was. I know it's pandemic time. So excuse me if my chronology is a little off. But basically, there was a period where all over America and in most parts of Europe, case numbers during the summer basically went to zero. Like I distinctly remember my three and a half year old son just like being completely like enchanted by the fact that he was going inside to play at his friend's house Mm -hmm. because his whole life of memory, at least, had been like during COVID times and everybody was feeling great. It was like the best summer of all time. And then the Delta variant came along and it just gut punched us. Mm -hmm. Now, what's fascinating is most people felt a lot worse when that happened than at the beginning of the pandemic, even though we had so many more tools. We had therapeutics, we had vaccination, we knew more about how the virus spread. So we were in a much better place to confront the the, the pandemic in COVID. Yeah. Yet people still felt like it was as bad as when it first happened. And why is that? Because our expectations shifted. Like we all got really used to that summer. And the people, and more importantly, the organizations that were able to get through that period with as little suffering as possible were the ones that were very quickly able to update their expectations. Mm-hmm. And that happens to us in life all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, an, uh, another example that is um, perhaps like less extreme, but even simpler is a marathon. So a marathon's 26 miles. Miles 20 to 26 suck. If you go into a marathon thinking miles 20 to 26 are going to be rosy, you are going to have such a terrible time. I can almost guarantee you you're going to quit the race. Mm-hmm. But if you go into a marathon knowing that miles 20 to 26 are going to suck, you know what? You'll get through it. And on a good day, you might even be pleasantly surprised. Yeah. And I think that that's a really like important metaphor for navigating change. It's not to say always have really crappy low expectations, but it's to realize like that change is hard and our job is to meet reality as it is, not as we thought it would be. Yeah, I, I appreciate this perspective so much because I know you talk about this idea of tragic optimism, which I think is, is often in conflict with so much of the, you know, rah-rah, new age, you know, self-help stuff that basically is like, oh, think positive and everything will come to you and your life will be amazing. I'm like, this is some serious horse shit. It's not true. 
um, there's nuance, which I, I really, that's why I think I like your books because you, you acknowledge nuance, you're aware of context, which I feel like there's so much literature and self-improvement that just kind of glosses over that. Yeah. So tragic optimism is one of my favorite concepts in the book. It was a term that is first coined by Viktor Frankl, um, Holocaust survivor, psychoanalyst, most well-known for his book, Man's Search for Meaning, much lesser known for this essay that he wrote later on called The Case for Tragic Optimism. And Frankel tells it like it is. He says that being a human is wonderful and it sucks because we are the only species that can think way ahead and know that we're going to die and everything and everyone we love is also going to die. And our work is to have that knowledge and still show up and embrace all the joy and beauty of life. And he coined this tragic optimism that we can't bury our heads in the sand about the tragedies of being a human. There is inevitable pain and suffering. No one gets through this life without it. So we can't be Pollyannas. We can't like fall into what people might call toxic positivity. But despair and nihilism is not a good stance either. So our work is to embrace the fact that the suffering and the pain is going to be there and to be optimistic and hopeful nonetheless. And I think that especially in today's world, I'm so glad that like this was a concept in the book that that you um that stood out to you because it's really easy and I think particularly on the internet to fall into one of two extremes. So one extreme is the Pollyanna toxic positivity extreme where you just bury your head in the sand, you never turn on the news and you just say everything is great, like I'm just going to ignore all that's wrong. The other extreme is everything sucks, we're all doomed you know, it's just terrible, despair. And I think both of these are complete cop-outs because they both absolve you of the need to actually do anything to make the situation better. If you bury your head in the sand and you tell yourself a lie that everything's great always, well, then you don't even realize that there are things that are broken about your life or broken about the world and you don't need to fix them. Whereas if you say that everything sucks and there's nothing I can do, I'm just one person, you know, despair is the way to go, well, then that also absolves you of the need to do anything. And I think if Frankel were alive today, what he would say is in between those two extremes, there's this huge chasm. And that's the chasm where we need to be. I think what I wrote in the book is like, if we're to fix a broken world, we can't become broken people. Uh And to me, that's what tragic optimism is all about. Well, you talk about the two components of a rugged and flexible mindset working together. And you say, first, we've got to drop the weight of denial and resistance and instead open to the flow of life, accepting that the only constant is change and seeing it clearly for what it is. Second, we've got to expect it to be hard, which paradoxically, paradoxically makes everything easier. Expand on that for me and you know, talk to me about that idea. So if you think about these two traps, right? The first is that we resist change instead of accepting it. And the more that we do that, the more that we suffer. Uh, there's another equation that is suffering equals pain times resistance. So whenever there's pain, you're always going to suffer and change can be really painful for people. But if you resist that change, the suffering's just worse because like eventually it's going to come and it's going to get you. And the longer that you push back against it, like the more tension that's building up. So the first part of a rugged and flexible mindset is just that. It's accepting that change is a part of life, that change isn't always bad, change isn't always good, change just is. And while we can't control everything, we also have some agency in how we work with change. Mm -hmm. And then the second part of a rugged, flexible mindset is understanding the importance of expectations 
in updating our expectations to meet reality. Yeah. Because as we said, if your expectations are rosier than reality, you're going to feel like crap. But if you can adjust your expectations when change happens, then instead of living and resisting change and kind of like being in an orbit that's not real and being mad that you're not where you thought you'd be, you're living exactly where you are. And that's the only place that you can start taking productive actions to work with where you are. And this is true at the most minute individual level all the way up to societal concerns like global warming. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about this idea of complexity and differentiation and integration as it relates to the concept of having a fluid identity. All right. So this is probably my favorite topic in the book. So we talked about a rugged and flexible mindset. We talked about navigating specific changes. Now I want to zoom out and I want to focus on what does it mean to be a strong person, to have a strong sense of self when everything is always changing, including you? And this is literally the subtitle of the book. And the key to this, I believe, is very paradoxical. It is to diversify your sense of self. So the way that I like to think of it is your identity has multiple rooms. And those rooms could be athlete, creative, family member, husband, parent, son, daughter, spouse, employee, community member. What I think a common trap is, is when we over-identify with any one of those things, then when that thing's changes, when that thing changes, we become really fragile because we lose a sense of who we are. Whereas if we have multiple rooms, multiple components of our identity, when things suck in one or when things like really rashly change in one, we can lean into other components of those identities. So this isn't to say that it's not okay to like go all in or really care about something, but we should never define ourselves solely by one thing. Like we should diversify our sense of self. Mm -hmm. So in my own life, my big rooms of my identity are is a husband, a father, a writer, a coach, and an athlete. And what's nice about that is when things change in one of those areas, I can lean on the others for a sense of stability and predictability. Because odds are all five of those things aren't going to change at the exact same time. (laughs) And the story that I told in the book came from an Olympian named Niels Vanderpool, who um, set the world record in long course speed skating in both the 5K and the 10K. And what's fascinating about Vanderpool is prior to his breakthrough, he realized that he was just way too fused. His identity was way too fused with being an Olympian. And that made him really fragile. It's really dangerous. Like you spend your whole life focusing on this one goal. You conceive of yourself just based on this one thing. Well, what happens if you get injured or or you get beat? Like it just doesn't set you up to do well. And he was carrying all this pressure and it was getting in his way. He was underperforming. So in the buildup to the Olympics in which he set the world record and won two gold medals, he decided that he wanted to go on a project, not just to be a good speed skater, but to make himself a more robust person. So he only trained five days a week, which for Olympians is insane not to train six or seven days a week. And he started going out for beers and pizza with his friends. He started reading books. So he became a more complete person and that freed him up to be a better speed skater. Um, so like not only do we feel better and not only do we become more robust to change, but I think it also like helps us get out of our own way when we can diversify our sense of self. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of two things that I heard from two podcast guests. One was Annie Duke when she was talking about her previous book, Quit, uh, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. 
And the other was uh, uh, with <clears throat> Jenny Tates, who wrote a book called How to Be Single and Happy. And Jenny Tates, I remember telling me, she said, you know, like your person can't be your everything. You need to diversify your portfolio of meaning. And that really always stayed with me. And then when it came to Annie Duke, she said, often this identity trap gets people not to quit things. And I'll give you a personal example. You, I mean, you, you and I are both people who publish books and we know how it goes. You, your first books don't sell enough. You don't get a book deal. And I remember there was a time when I had to come to terms with the fact that, okay, maybe this part of my career is done, that me as a published author with a publisher is over. And I realized once I was able to let that go, I was like, okay, great. Now I can go on and do something else. But the longer I'd stayed in that trap and tried to get book deals, it just kept me, you know, like spinning my wheels. Yeah. And I think that that's right. And, and it's, and it's not uncommon. Um, when you do that, because like you do, you get like identity foreclosure is the term that psychologists use, which is basically like, this is who you are. So you better make it work instead of realizing, you know, what the poet Walt Whitman said, which is we all contain multitudes. Um, and then even within your own experience, I think that defining these things that you care about, not based on the what, but based on the why. So like what I would argue, and it's, um, it's quite obvious just based on everything that you do and like literally the, the title of your podcast is like your actual value and what you care about is creativity. And writing a book is one way to express it, but there are many other ways to express it. Mm -hmm. So like the part of your identity that I would say is rugged is, is someone that is creative or intellectual. You know, you could pick which of those resonates more, but writing a book is just a pretty narrow way to define yourself. Like, no, you're creative, you're intellectual, and there's multiple ways to practice that value. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even the podcast, I'd always swore right from the get-go, people are like, you've done all these different things like animated shorts, you know, writing books. And I was like, yeah, that's because I never wanted to be defined by any one project. There's something Sam Altman actually uh, had said, and I remember Naval Ravikant repeated this on his podcast. He said, Sam Altman always says that, you know, whatever you do next should make whatever you did previously look like a footnote in your career. Yeah, I like that. I mean, that's like a big swing um, approach. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, you know, I don't know if I'd exactly agree with that quote, but I think the spirit of it is really good. Yeah. Um, but I just, I, I keep coming back to this notion of like hustle culture says you need to go all in. And what I'm saying is not that like you should phone it in. It's okay to spend a whole year or two years or maybe even a couple of years of your life in one room of your identity, but you can never leave the other rooms completely behind. Yeah. Another people, uh, excuse me, another trap that people fall into here is um, with just their careers. And it's why retirement is so hard for people. Like if your whole identity is your career and then you retire, well, of course, it's like going to be completely disorienting. And then parents, when they become empty nesters. So if their whole identity was as a parent and a specific kind of parent, a parent of kids in the home, when those kids leave, their world falls into disarray. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that we should not care about our jobs or care about our kids and give those things our complete all. And it's not to say that it's ever easy to see your kids go off to school or leave the house or to retire from a job. They're still going to be hard. But it is to say that if there are other components of your identity, it's a little bit less hard and a little bit less disorienting. So part of what makes us so rugged throughout change is having these different parts of our identity that we can lean into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's one of the most important parts of the book, to be totally honest. Sorry, like I know yeah. that we're belaboring it a little bit. I really do, because like I think that I am I identify so much with being a writer mm -hmm. and like it, it is it makes my ego feel good. Like it's just great. And I have to ask myself, like, if this book flops, would I be okay? Yeah. And the only reason the answer is yes 
is because I've really built up a strong identity as a father, as an athlete, as a husband, as a community member. And I'd find something else to do for work and it would suck. It wouldn't be easy. It would be really, really shitty. But I don't think I'd fall into a depression because these other elements of my identity are strong. No, I, I appreciate that so much. I, I think that, that that is such a big trap for so many people, particularly creatives. Yeah, you know, we are so tied to our work that it's very easy to assume that, you know, like who we are is our work. I mean, I, like I wonder about that at times. Like, oh, if I weren't hosting The Unmistakable Creative, like who would I be? Yeah, and I think that like it's important to answer that question. And, and, it, and it's, it's an important room in the house that is your identity. So like not taking that away from you, but yeah, like like who would you be? And maybe the answer comes back to, you know, you'd be a really creative person and you would find other ways to exert your creativity. Yeah. Well, I, I always knew that this was never going to be the one thing that I did. Like I was like, I, one of my friends asked me, what would you do after you, if you sold Unmistakable Creative for a fortune? I was like, probably go teach at a university and start another company. Yeah. But that gets back again, like and, and that gets back to this notion of like being really values driven. So, you know, I don't know you that well, but like, you know, maybe another value of yours is growth or innovation. Um, so then you're just exerting that value. Mm -hmm. And right, I think this is like, we're going to get to this, but so you've got these different rooms and these different things, whatever metaphor you want to use, components of your identity. That's really important. That allows you to be flexible and rugged. But you also have these core values, which are the parts of you that like don't really change. These are things like wisdom, growth, spirituality, intellect, creativity, health. And these are just a couple of many examples. Yeah. Let's, and over time, sorry. the way that you apply those things mm -hmm. can become different as you change and the world around you changes. Yeah. Let's talk about this idea of target fixation, because I, I think this really stood out to me only based on a personal experience. You said, defined broadly, target fixation is when a person becomes so focused on a particular target that they are headed towards that they end up driving, riding, or flying right into it. And if we focus, if we become too focused on the next thing in front of us, then we risk thoughtlessly crashing into it. And the sort of example I thought of, you know, for my own life about this was I had for the longest time had this goal to publish a thousand copies of or to sell a thousand copies of a self-published book. And, you know, the, another one was to get a book. And the irony of that whole thing was the book deal, the book that the self-published book that sold 15,000 copies and led to the book deal was the result of me having given up on getting a book deal. Yeah, that's so funny. So like you, you stop looking at the target and then you hit it. Yeah, well, I was like, nobody's coming. I'm like, I've, I've waited this long, screw it, I'm done. And that book was what basically catapulted me into, you know, and it's funny to this day, that's still my most popular book. Yeah, and and I think that that is so often how it goes is that like when we over try or we over focus on something, um, it doesn't work out as well. Uh -huh. And target fixation comes from um, fighter pilots and um, you'll often hear about it in like driver's ed courses as well. It's why there are crashes on the shoulder because everyone's like looking at the crash and then they drive right into it. And it's this very real measurable notion that when a pilot or a car or a motorcycle, when the captain or the driver is staring at something ahead of them, if they completely lose peripheral vision and they kind of zone in on that thing too much, they end up driving right into it. And the metaphor for life is exactly what you said. We have to keep our peripheral vision because there's so much stuff happening on the side that could be great opportunities or could have us veer left or veer right. And if we just focus on the target, then yeah, like we can blow ourselves up. And even if we achieve it, like, okay, so then like you achieve that target and then you die. Like that's no way to live life. Yeah. 
Let's talk briefly about the seeking pathway that you uh, talk about here in the book as something that facilitates planning and problem solving. All right. So uh, seeking versus rage pathway. And it's important to, to name them both um, because the, it's a zero-sum game. And, and I'll get into why this is so important. So the when, when we're faced with big changes, um, neuroscientists, really one specific neuroscientist, Jak Pansky, came up with this notion of circuitry in our brain. And there's the rage pathway, which is when we are really angry and like we're anxious and we're panicking. Like this can't be happening to me. It's resistance. It's like the ha emotion. And then there's the seeking pathway. And the seeking pathway is when we view something as a challenge in a problem to solve or a goal to strive for. And what the research shows is that these pathways cannot be activated at the same time. So by turning your seeking pathway on, you turn your rage pathway off. And we can see this when we look at fascinating MRI studies of people's brains in different emotional states. But we also kind of know it. Like, it is impossible to be really pissed off and thoughtfully planning something at the same time. So what the seeking pathway is all about is when there is a big change or something does throw us for a loop, the more quickly that we can get into viewing that as a challenge and dealing with it, the more likely we are to downregulate the feelings of anger or denial or panic or resistance. So accept it, update your expectations, and then make a plan. Start to engage with it. And the ultimate way to turn on the seeking pathway is just to start taking productive actions. Mm -hmm. Like you cannot be working to solve a problem and despondent at the same time. Uh, the research literature, they call this behavioral activation. I've heard the podcast host, Rich Roll, say mood follows action, but it's basically just that. Like the best way to snap out of the rage pathway is to start taking productive actions to make your situation better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I think we, we've talked extensively about routines and rituals on the show. I know you alluded to them and I think they're important, um, but I, I actually, you know, I think people have heard enough of this, but there's something that really stood out to me in the book where you said the conventional wisdom on getting through challenges says that on one extreme, there's taking responsibility and picking oneself up by the bootstraps. On, on the other, there's taking it easy and showing oneself boundless love. While these are often pitted against each other, the truth is that they're complementary. In most circumstances, you need at least some measure of both. Yeah, that's right. So this is the uh, not self-discipline or self-compassion, but self-discipline and self-compassion. So Doing hard things is hard. Being a human is hard. Navigating big changes is really hard. And if you can't be your own friend, if you don't have your own back, if you can't be kind to yourself, then it becomes that much harder. And at worst, you stop even trying. Like, why show up and step in the arena if you know that if you mess up, you're just going to judge yourself and be super hard on yourself? Uh -huh. So... We think that these things are opposites, but in order to be really self-disciplined, in order to step up into the arena and do hard things, you also have to learn how to be kind to yourself and how to get back up quickly when you fall down. So, you know, I think there's one other thing that really stood out to me in the book, and this is something that I've always wondered about, given the sheer volume of knowledge and information I've had access to 13 years, I get to spend my days talking to people like you. And it's this difference between understanding something intellectually versus being able to use, put that information to use. And, you know, I think that stood out to me so much because it's so easy to get caught up in this like endless consumption trap thinking 
that you're being productive by, you know, reading all these self-help books and listening to all these podcasts and subscribing to a million newsletters, but then never doing anything with it. How do you bridge that gap? I think that the answer is first to become aware of it. Uh, it's like the knowing doing gap, right? You can know something, but that doesn't mean that you're doing it. So if you get stuck in a knowing cycle, just saying like, hey, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about reading about dreaming about talking about this thing, what would it look like to actually do it? And then back to something where we started, like make your first actions really simple. You know, don't resolve to boil the ocean, like pick one or two things that you cannot hide away from and measure whether or not you do those one or two things. I think part of the reason that we like to spend so much time in um, knowing mode is because it allows us to procrastinate. It allows us to make things complex. It's like intellectual masturbation is a lot easier than actually doing the thing that you learned. Um, so I think like simplifying, right? Like really saying like, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. You know, the next time I'm thrown off in my day, I'm going to remember two P's versus four P's and I'm going to give myself 30 seconds to pause and process what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, the next time there's a change, I'm going to say like, what would it look like to be both rugged and flexible? Like just those two things, you know? People walk away from my book and they do those two things for three months. That's great. But I think you've got to get like that small and that specific so that you can be consistent and you don't hide behind complexity. Yeah. No, I, I think I wrote somewhere that like mental masturbation basically you know, deludes you into product, you know, the idea that you're productivity and you don't even get the pleasure of an orgasm from it. That's it, man. That's, that, that, I think, and there's so much of that, especially with like the think boys and the thread boys on the internet now, like, you could spend your whole day just reading tweet threads, or I guess now they're called X threads or whatever X is. Um, yeah, I, I didn't even know, you know that's news to me. I, I was like, somebody told me that yesterday on podcast. I was like, better change this name to X. Yeah, it's an interesting decision making. But, um, you, you know, you can really like trick yourself into all this stuff. And there's layers. It's like even there, like get off Twitter and like listen to a podcast like this or read a book. Um, and then it's like, once you've listened to enough podcasts like this, or you've read enough books, then it's like, great, like put down your phone or book and start doing the thing. But I think a lot of people get stuck at the surface level, which is like the think boy Twitter thread. Well, this has been uh, amazing and uh, really just such a pleasure to have you back. Uh, So I want to finish with my final question. It's always interesting to see how people answer this when they've come back a second time. What do you think it is knowing somebody or something unmistakable? Ooh, I don't even remember what I said the first time. Well, that's good Um, (laughs) for me. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a realness and not a performative realness, but like a real realness. I think there's so much performative crap out there right now that it's pretty easy to get your BS detector up and like say like, you know, is someone actually how they portray themselves to be or is there like a lot going on? You know, the metaphor, it's not mine. I, I forgot where I first heard it. It's like, there's a lot of swans out there on the internet uh-huh. where like they look beautiful above water, but underwater they're paddling frantically. And I think like just showing up is yourself and being freaking real in um, just all of it. Like that I think is what makes you unmistakable. And I think especially younger generations, like their bullshit filter is going to be really good. Um, so showing up like honestly in integrity uh, or excuse me, honestly, and with integrity is, is I think how I'm going to answer this go round. Amazing. Well, I mean, like I could also say, you know, deadlift 500 pounds cause that's pretty real, but that's another thing, you know, it has nothing to do with my answer, but now that I joked about it, I think that it gets back to like knowing versus doing, I think, especially for knowledge workers like me and you, it's so important to like do real things in the world. 
And I joke, it doesn't have to be deadlifting. I sound like such like a, a masculine meathead. It can be gardening. It can be yoga. It can be dancing. It could be carpentry. But like have some pursuit where the weights are on the ground and then you either pick them up or you don't. You either succeed or fail. There are no flowers. You plant the seeds, you water them. They either grow or they don't. You know, the table's not there. You build the table, then it's there. I think it's so important to do real things in the world to to help us stay grounded throughout all the crazy change that we're facing. Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, the new book, and everything else? So my website is my name, www.bradstalberg.com. Try to keep that really easy. And um, Master of Change is available wherever you get books. So your local bookstore, Barnes & Noble, of course, it's on Amazon, it's on Audible, it's on Kindle. Um, so you really should have no problem finding it. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? 
We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.